We'll turn to our master text in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to say that I finished a series last, what was it, two weeks ago? Uh, yeah, last week we had the CMA here. So two weeks ago, I finished a series called The Remnant. And we talked about in that very last teaching in that series that remnant people are ambassadors for Christ. So I want to continue that theme today with a new series that I'm starting called Always Have an Answer. So we'll be talking today about uh, basically training and evangelism, how to engage people and talk to people in a way that uh, will help to draw them in and um, hopefully lead them to Christ. You think that's a worthwhile goal? But because look, we, whether you like the idea or not, we have all been called to share our faith and to evangelize and take the gospel to every creature and every nation. That's not a suggestion. That's our mandate. Uh, and you don't have to be an quote-unquote evangelist to share your faith. All of us are called to share our faith in some way, shape, or form. So if you have found 1 Peter chapter 3, stand up with me if you will. Let's honor the reading of God's word. It's such a short one this morning. Verse 15 in 1 Peter chapter 3. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. All right, well, that's a short passage today, but boy, does it ever say a lot. Now, when I did that series on the remnant, I started something um, in reading little faux pas from church bulletins, just opening up with a little bit of you know, lightheartedness and laughter, spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. I kind of liked that. So I'm going to do something like that again today, not out of church bulletins, but I found this little comic strip. has nothing to do with my teaching today, but I thought that this was funny. Um, so here we see a comic strip with Abraham and Isaac, okay? And the first uh, square there says, here's the wood for the sacrifice, Dad. And Abraham says, groovy. And then Isaac says, here's the dagger for the sacrifice, Dad. Abraham says, keen. And then Isaac looks around a little bit as Abraham is making sure there's a nice sharp point on the, the dagger there. And he's looking around, and then he says, well, where's the sacrifice? And then Abraham says, God will provide Isaac. And then Isaac says, wait, did you say God will provide Isaac? Or, or God will provide Isaac. And then Abraham says, come here, son. And Isaac says, I ain't budging until you put in a comma. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, young people, proper punctuation matters. Uh, when you text me, I love proper punctuation. I love commas. I love exclamation marks when appropriate, question marks when appropriate, periods when appropriate, and capital letters. Thank you very much. So that I don't have to text back and say, um, what? So what, what are you saying? Anyway, that's a pet peeve of mine. All right, so let's jump into the, uh, the, the content this morning uh, in discussing always have an answer. All right, so... 
I want to begin this teaching by saying uh, that you're going to deal with skeptics. Every time you share your faith, there's a good possibility you're going to be dealing with a skeptic. What is a skeptic? According to the dictionary definition, a skeptic is a person who is inclined to question or doubt accepted opinions. So a skeptic is simply a person who doesn't accept an opinion just because someone else says it's true. They have to be shown and convinced, which to a certain degree there's nothing wrong with that. But then there's the other extreme of the skeptic where, uh, for whatever reason, some skeptics can be people who don't want to believe something, so they will fight tooth and nail to come up with all these different objections to support their opinions. For example, I'm just gonna use an example here, okay? So let's say, as an example, you might own a Ford truck, and you say that Ford trucks are superior to Toyota trucks. Now, this is just an example. If you own a Toyota, don't get mad at me, okay? And you have a friend that owns a Toyota, and that friend would disagree with you and say, no, Toyota trucks are superior to Ford trucks. So you get in a little discussion, and you pull out all your, your facts and your evidences and your research and your data, showing very clearly that Ford trucks are superior to Toyota trucks. Well, how's your friend who owns the Toyota going to respond to that? He will probably dig in his heels and stick to his guns simply because he has an emotional attachment to Toyotas because he owns one. Are you following me? Okay. Now, do you know what that's called when somebody is shown clearly the facts and evidences that support one position that they don't really want to accept and they dig in their heels anyway and resist it? You know what that's called? Denial, I heard that word, that's actually very true, but I refer to it as intellectual dishonesty. Intellectual dishonesty. Um, when you're clearly shown facts and evidences, but you're like, eh, what? That's, you're being dis intellectually dishonest. There's a lot of people out there that you'll face that are intellectually dis dishonest when it comes to the gospel. And um, let's not be too hard on them or judge them too harshly because it's important also important to understand that you and I, at some point in our lives, were probably skeptics as well. So, having been former skeptics, now let's deal graciously with the skeptics. So, on that note, I want to go through four objections this morning. I'm going to give you several throughout the, the course of this series, because I want you to be well equipped to have these conversations. So the first objection we're going to deal with this morning is that the church is full of hypocrites. Have you ever heard that? Oh, yeah. The church is full of hypocrites. Okay, well, there's several ways that you can address this. And the first one is, is lovingly demonstrate the hypocrisy of that claim. That claim is hypocritical, and here's why. In fact, you can ask the person that may be raising this objection, hey, let me ask you a question. Um, do you believe that lying is wrong. And most people would say, yeah, yeah, I believe that lying is wrong. Okay, so let me ask you another question. How many lies have you told in your life? Brings it back to them, doesn't it? Shows them that yes, that hypocrisy claim is hypocritical because for them to believe that lying is wrong, but they've done it more times in their lives than they can count, is hypocritical, okay? Now, you don't need to be pointing your finger at people and calling them a hypocrite, but that's just a way to demonstrate that we all have walked in hypocrisy. 
at one time or another. Um, here's another one. Um, the actual number of hypocrites in the kingdom of God is zero. You may have never really considered that before. And that's the, the reason for that is because the word hypocrite means pretender. It means pretender. See, there's a stark difference between people who go to church and people who belong to God's church or his kingdom or his family. Just because you go to church doesn't necessarily mean that you're in God's family. If you're just punching a time card just because you want to appease your conscience, but you just go live off, go off and live any way you want to the rest of the time, you know what that is? That's hypocrisy. Okay? So we need to help people to understand the difference that just because somebody goes to church and then lives in a way that is different than how they say they believe, that doesn't even necessarily mean they're in the kingdom of God at all. So there's a difference between people who go to church and people who are part of God's church or his kingdom or his family. Let's deal with another answer to that question about the church is full of hypocrites. Thirdly, it's true that there are hypocrites who go to church, but this actually validates Jesus' claims. Now, I've got a little misprint there. It's Matthew 21 it should be through 24. Matthew 7, 21 through 24 is the way that that should read. And what that reads there is that Jesus said on the day of judgment, some will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these religious things in your name? And he will say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, it will actually get in, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. You can claim anything. You can do all your little religious duties and dot the I's and cross the T's and go to church if you want to. But unless you do the will of the Father and you accept Jesus as your Savior, as the only scapegoat for your sins, and then you live your life in response to that love, totally dedicated and sold out to him, then if you're just hoping that your good deeds are going to get you into heaven, you're not going to make it. That's what he's saying. Okay? So once again, it's true that there are hypocrites who go to church. But... This actually validates Jesus' claims that someday a time would come where many people who think they're in good standing with God based upon their religious activity, quote unquote, are not going to make it. What a horrible thing to think you're in good standing with God only to be plunged into eternity and then there find that you're not going to make it. Can you imagine the horror? It's good to know now. Okay? See, Jesus predicted that there would be tares among the wheat. You know what that is? A tear is like a, it's like a, it's a weed. It's like an aggressive weed. There would be tares among the wheat. An example of this would be this. You know, I, I, there are certain police officers that have committed crimes who are dishonest. But I don't dismiss the importance of law enforcement just because there's a few police officers who've been hypocrites and who have been dishonest. That would be ignorant on my part to say, well, I'm just gonna dismiss all of law enforcement because this handful of police officers did this. That would be ignorant, wouldn't it? Same is true with the church. It's, it's ignorant to dismiss the church because there's a handful of people who are hypocrites who go to church. You following me? So these are good answers, I think, to this question, the church is full of, full of hypocrites, but I have one more. And you could ask the question, by the word hypocrite, do you mean imperfect? 
Because everyone's in process. And see, we need to be under uh, helping people to understand this too, that being a Christian doesn't mean that you immediately become perfect. We begin learning and growing at that very moment, and it's a, it's a process of sanctification throughout the rest of your life. So being a Christian doesn't mean that you become immediately perfect, but it does mean that you receive mercy. It does mean that you receive mercy. So always swing it back to the gospel in some way, shape, or form. Here's a second objection that we're going to deal with this morning. Christians have committed atrocities for centuries. Have you ever heard that one? Yeah. So, folks, listen, some people blame Christianity for religious wars, the Crusades, burning witches, the Inquisition, slavery, and even the Holocaust. Now, by the way, side note, if you want a really great example of how um, religion has led to religious wars, look no further than the Muslims. Muslim jihad has been perpetrated by the Muslims for centuries. And actually, if people bring up the Inquisition, um, which is the religious wars against the, the Muslims, you know the reason that, that, that the Inquisition happened? Historically, this is a historical fact it, that most people don't know this because they don't promote it. They don't promote this idea because they want the, the, the negative light to be cast upon the Christians. Do you know why the Inquisitions happened? Is because Muslim jihad was threatening to wipe out Christians in certain regions of the world in the Middle East. I mean, the, the, the Muslim jihad against Christians was so widespread and so horrific that Muslims were, or I'm sorry, Christians were afraid that they were going to be completely wiped out by Muslims unless they fought back. So that was what the, the Crusades were all about, it's just fighting back against Muslim jihad. That's, that's the whole reason that the Crusades happened. Okay, so just to give you a little bit of historical, you know, factual basis there. Um, but let's go back to this objection. The, the issue of atrocities is simply an, an extension of what we covered before on the question of hypocrites. So I want you to understand, and I'm gonna give you several answers to this objection too. True Christians, true Christ followers don't commit atrocities. Okay, true Christ followers do not commit atrocities. See, there's been so-called believers, so-called Christians, who didn't practice true Christianity, who have indeed perpetrated evil throughout history. But in reality, these people were like, well, you've heard Republican in name only, rhinos. Well, there were Christians in name only. Because even Adolf Hitler claimed to be a Christian. Did you know that? Christian in name only. Clearly. <laughs> Here's another answer to this question. See, God's Old Testament commands to the Jews. And I, before I give you this answer, let me just kind of elaborate on, on this part of the question uh, or the objection, Christians have committed atrocities for centuries, and they will point to the Old Testament where God told people to wipe out certain races of people. Okay, and he did do that. He told the Jews to wipe out certain races of people, men, women, children, and animals. And so people will point to that and say, see, 
you know, God's people have been committing atrocities for centuries. But let me give you, a, again, some historical insight on that. So God's Old Testament commands to the Jews to annihilate certain races of people were acts of mercy and judgment. Let me explain. So back in the days of the ancient Jews and these ancient cultures like the, the Canaanites and, and what have you, they worshipped all these foreign pagan gods. And you know what a very common practice, religious practice, of these pagans would be? Burning children at the stake to sacrifice to their god. As a matter of fact, you've heard me talk about it before. One of their gods was named Molech. And they erected a metal statue of Molech with his hands straight out like this. And they would heat those hands up with fire, red hot, and then place a live baby on those hands and let it roast to death. That's how these pagans worshipped their gods. Now, God in his mercy let that go on for centuries, like 400 years. God let that go on because he was waiting for these people to repent. And they never did. So at one time, God said, okay, I've had enough of you roasting babies. I'm not going to put up with it anymore. And he brought in the Jews. He said, wipe them all out. Men, women, children, and animals, wipe them out. It was an act of mercy because God didn't want any more babies being roasted. Do you see the mercy and the appropriate judgment of God at work here? So when people say, point to the Old Testament and say that God is a monster because he had people, his people, the Jews, wipe out certain races of people, you can say, um, pardon me, but you're uninformed. Let me fill you in on why this happened. Okay? Praise God. He's a God of appropriate judgment and great mercy. See, we don't even understand the mercy of God that would allow this to go on for 400 years because he's waiting and hoping for people to repent of this horrific stuff. But then there comes a point where even God's patience runs out. And he says, no more. I'm calling you to, to judgment today. Praise God for that, right? And this issue of atrocities done in the name of religion, by the way, can also honestly simply be a smokescreen to avoid the real issue, which is people's hardened hearts toward God, and they don't want God interfering what they want to do with their lives. They want to live lives their own way. John chapter 3 says that people's hearts are darkened, that people love the darkness more than the light. And they will not come into the light for fear that their evil deeds will be exposed. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. But we also have to consider that Christianity on this point, this objection, Christianity has far more positive influences, uh, or positive achievements rather, than negative influences. For example, the influence of Christianity has been instrumental in the formation of countless hospitals, um, orphanages, colleges, charity organizations, and relief agencies. As a matter of fact, no other religion on earth even comes close to Christianity in that regard. The ones that do come the closest are the Jews. Like there's the Jewish hospital in Louisville. Um, but then, you know, there's 
There's Christian hospitals like St. Francis and what have you. So Christianity is number one. Jews are number two in terms of charity organizations and humanitarian efforts. No other people group, no other religion on earth throughout history has even come close. So when somebody says that Christians have committed atrocities for centuries, well, okay, but, but wait a minute. What about all the good that Christianity's done, right? But in addressing this objection, what was Jesus's primary message, though? What was Jesus' primary message? Well, Jesus' message was one of, number one, repentance and love. Now, by the way, this is kind of leads me off on a little bit of a rabbit trail where some people will say, you know, when trying to justify a certain lifestyle, well, you know, aren't you supposed to be preaching a message of love? Jesus preached a message of, of love. Yes, he did, but he preached a message of repentance first and foremost. First and foremost, Jesus' message was repentance. Turn from your sins. But it was also a message of love. Yes, indeed. So you can say to people that bring up this objection, Jesus said, if you hate someone, you're a murderer at heart. So let's be honest. Have you ever hated someone? So we've committed atrocities within our own hearts. Because Jesus said, if you hate someone, you're a murderer. Uh-oh. That takes it to a whole new level, doesn't it? All right. So that's objection number two. And that's some, you know, just bullet points there, some answers that you can, and some discussion points for those who bring up those types of objections. Let's go on to objection number three. And this is a big one that a lot of people will bring up. Where was God when I was suffering? Where was God when I was suffering? Now, folks, listen. At the heart of this objection is the charge that God isn't fair. I want to say that again. At the heart of this objection is the charge and the accusation against God that he is not fair. And here's why that people make that charge and that accusation against God when things don't go their way. And it's primarily because we're a very hedonistic society. Do you know what hedonism means? It means the endless pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence. We are a hedonistic society. The endless pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence. So that when a little bit of suffering does come, people shake their fist at God. Because you interrupted my self-indulgence. Well, they accuse God of doing so. Of course, it could have been their own doing. They could have been just reaping the, you know, reaping what they sowed. But they shake their fist at God. You know, Proverbs 19.3 says that people ruin their lives by their own foolishness. And then they shake their fist at God and they're angry at God. So when people experience a little bit of suffering, it interrupts their hedonism. It interrupts their endless pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence. But I want to read you what C.S. Lewis uh, said in The Problem of Pain. He wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
Now, if you have a problem with that concept, because I do believe that God is a good God and he wants to bless you, Jesus said in John 10, 10, we repeat it often that the thief, the devil, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come, Jesus said, that you may have life and have it more abundantly. So how does pain factor into that then? Well, look at the ancient Israelites, the Jews. How many times did the Jews abandon God over and over and over again, and God gave them several decades to repent, and they never did? Then he said, okay, um, I'm going to... I'm going to stir things up a little bit. I'm going to bring a foreign nation against you and oppress you, and then maybe you'll repent. So does God bring pain into people's lives sometimes? Well, God's a good God, believe me. God's a good God. But based upon the history of the Jews, we have to acknowledge that God will sometimes rattle your cage in order to try to get your attention. It's an act of mercy to try to get your attention. In fact, he told uh, the, the Corinthian church there was a man who was committing sexual immorality. He was actually having an affair with his dad's wife. And he said, you all ought to be ashamed that's going on in, in your midst. And he said, I'm turning this man over to Satan for the destruction of his body so that hopefully his soul will be saved. Did, did you catch that? God was turning this man over to, the, to Satan for the destruction of his body so that in the end, hopefully, his soul would be saved. God will sometimes allow, give Satan access to certain people to come in and steal, kill, and destroy so that they may repent. I'm just preaching the word to you. God's still a good God. God still loves you. He wants to bless you. But sometimes he will allow the destroyer to come in. He will bring havoc. The destroyer will bring havoc so that God can get your attention, so you repent, so you don't die and go to hell. That's the hope. All right. I love what Lisa Bevere said on this point. Destiny is revealed in seasons of confrontation rather than seasons of comfort. When you're going through stuff, your destiny can be, be revealed during those times of difficulty and concentration, uh, of confrontation rather, rather than seasons of comfort. See, our problem, and please write this down, our problem is that the human race is that we hold pleasure and comfort as our chief goals in life, not understanding that pain is actually useful in some situations. So even though God, in, in many situations, God doesn't bring the pain into your life, it's simply an attack of the enemy or a result of your own bad choices, but God can still use it anyway. And see, none of us deserve God's kindness anyway. And see, that's where, that's where the mindset is that makes going through difficulties so problematic for some people. We think we deserve so much better, but we actually don't. We don't deserve God's kindness. We don't deserve it. And God isn't the author of human suffering. And, and I need to qualify that statement right there because I talked about how God turned the ancient Jews over to pagan nations for them to be oppressed. I, I, and I need to qualify this. Um, I don't believe that if um, someone in your family falls ill, that God struck them down. If somebody's serving God, wanting to, wanting to please him, I don't believe that God brings cancer, heart disease, that sort of thing, 
on your family members. I don't believe God kills babies to teach the parents a lesson. And some people preach that. I don't believe that. I believe God's way better than that. God's a good God. He's a good daddy. I don't believe God kills babies to teach parents a lesson. I don't believe that. Okay? So God is not the author of human suffering. God doesn't wipe out your finances in order to teach you a lesson. Now, you might wipe out your finances through bad choices, but God didn't do that to you. Okay? So God isn't the author of human suffering in that way, but he can and does use those kinds of things for our greater good. Does that make sense? Listen to this. This is a really important point right here. Man, you really need to lean in on this and really, like, hone in right now. Um, For whatever reason, pain causes some people to run from God, whereas pain causes some people, some other people, to run to him. Yeah, even in Nazi concentration camps, folks, and you know what the Nazi concentration camps were like. I mean, the horrific inhumane treatment, people starving and being beaten, and it just, oh, uh, it, horrific. So even in those Nazi concentration camps in World War I and World War II, um, there were some people who stopped believing in God during their suffering. But there were other people, listen, there were other people who said that they experienced God like never before in those dark and evil places. Isn't that amazing? My son Drew said something to me the other day that made me just, it like stopped me in my tracks. It was so profound for a 16-year-old. And we were talking about this tendency of, of some people to run from God during their suffering and other people to run to him during their suffering. And he said, yeah, heroes and villains are built the same way. And I went, wait a minute. I had never thought of that before, but that's true. And it took me aback, not only because such profound wisdom was coming from a 16-year-old, but also because I just never thought of it that way before. But it really is true. Think about it. Uh, some people go through horrible things, and it just it destroys them for the rest of their lives. They become drug addicts. They live out on the street. Uh, they have horrible emotional problems for the rest of their lives. But then other people who live in the very same household, maybe, the same upbringing, they turn out completely different. Completely different. I have my... My dad was raised in a family where the kids turned out all different kinds of ways. You know, I have two uncles who are both passed away now. Um, they were like on the opposite ends of the spectrum. There were four boys in that family and two girls. And the, uh, the, as a matter of fact, the two youngest boys were twins. And they were like the most radically polar opposite people in that entire family. One grew up to be a drug addict, addicted to alcohol, died early because of liver cirrhosis and other complications. Uh, never served the Lord. His twin brother grew up to be a millionaire, a, a very accomplished businessman, and a very godly and very well-loved man in his community. They were brought up in the same household. So it all depends on how you respond to the negative circumstances or the positive ones. 
Okay, because there's a lot of people that are brought up in, in very positive, very godly environments and go off and forget God and just live to indulge their flesh. And then some people raised in the same household go on to serve God and love God. It all depends on how you respond to your environment. So, but back to the pain issue, there's something mysterious and wonderful that happens with people who just continue to choose to trust God blindly in the midst of their pain. For those people, God often shows up in ways that they would have never experienced when they were not looking for him in their ease and comfort. So can God use pain? Absolutely. He uses the devil's tactics against him in many cases. Hallelujah. So on that note, this is another important statement I want you to remember and write down. God is sympathetic in our suffering. After all, Jesus himself took suffering upon himself in order to pay the penalty for our sins. So of course Jesus is sympathetic with your suffering. He went through incredible suffering for you. So one of the things that you can say to people uh, on that note is that, number one, suffering, ladies and gentlemen, is a result of sin. It's a result of the fall. There is suffering in this world. It's a result of, the sin, of sin. It's a result of the fall. But even so, 1 John 3.8 says that the Son of Man came in order to do what? Do you, do you know that verse, any of you? Thank you. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. See, listen, um, God's mercy and kindness, even though that we're living in the results of the fall right now, with all the sin, the degradation, the suffering, what have you, all that our society has become, even though that's true, listen to me, God's mercy and kindness are nevertheless all around us every day. But we so take it for granted that when suffering does come, it shocks us, right? It shocks us. So listen, when endeavoring to address this objection with people, always swing it back in the conversation to the main issue. So look at the screen. Always swing the conversation back to the main issue, which is, once again, Jesus is sympathetic with our suffering because Jesus himself took incredible suffering upon himself in order to pay the penalty for our sins. So always swing the conversation back to that main point. That's the main point. The main point isn't all these little rabbit trails that people try to take you down. Now you, now you can address some of these rabbit trails, but always swing it back to the main issue, which is that right there. Jesus took the suffering, the penalty that you deserve and I deserve for our sins, took it upon himself so that you and I wouldn't have to pay that penalty if we place our trust in him. Jesus was very acquainted with suffering. And so he's sympathetic with our suffering. So what's the main issue? The main issue is mankind's redemption through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. All right, I'm almost done. Uh, I'm going to summarize what, where we've been so far in this slide, then I'll be done and we'll pray. So God's mercy and justice ladies and gentlemen, are both administered impartially. In other words, you're not going to be able to point to somebody else and say, well, well, God, on the day of judgment I'm talking about, 
Well, God, I, I didn't serve you because I saw these Christians that I thought were hypocritical. You know what? That's not going to fly. Or, young people, you're not going to be able to ride your parents' coattails into heaven. Just because you had a mom and dad that served the Lord, guess what? You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ someday without your mom and dad. All by yourself. All by yourself. So God's mercy and judgment are both administered impartially. And I want to apply that thought to these summary thoughts here as we prepare to close. So you might hear the statement or the objection well, actually, this is an answer to these <clears throat> next statements. These next bullet points are answers to objections. You claim that Christians are hypocrites, but isn't it true that we have all behaved in ways inconsistent with what we say we believe? Always turn it back to the individual's hypocrisy, because we've all been hypocrites. Secondly, you make the claim that Christians have committed atrocities, but isn't it true that all of us have lied or wronged or mistreated other people for our own selfish reasons? We've all done that. We've all sinned against God and smashed his law into a thousand pieces by doing that. Next one. Your idea of God is based on your own experience with suffering, but did you know that Jesus suffered horribly on your behalf? so you could escape judgment? Always swing it back around. And then the last one. God is not judging us based upon what someone else does. You must face the Lord someday all by yourself. No one escapes judgment unless they place their faith in their scapegoat, Jesus Christ. So folks, listen. God will judge all hypocrites someday. God is going to judge all hypocrites someday. He is a just judge, and you and I are going to have to stand before him as well. Amen? Donna, would you come and play something really quick? So, you know, while I've given you some answers to these common objections, what this series is also going to do for us is it's going to bolster our own faith. Uh, it's going to strengthen our own belief system, and the faith that we say that we profess. The Bible says to evaluate yourself. The Bible says to examine yourself, to see if you're still in the faith. And I think that some of these points that we'll be addressing throughout this series will do exactly that for us, to help us to examine ourselves. Am I really in the faith? Do I really believe this stuff? Am I living a life that's consistent with what I say I believe? And that's what this series is gonna do for us as well. Would you stand with me, please? You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.